Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, I'm going to whisper some things to you now about crunch chocolate bars. Because apparently this whispering thing is a thing that makes you feel things. It's saying something crunchy is coming in the candy wrapper language. Mm. Imagine your tongue hiking up those crispy, rocky ridges. Now, drum roll, please. Wow, that's good. Crunchy, munchy chocolate doesn't whisper. Turn up the fun with Crunch. As always, should you or any member of your team be caught or killed, the secretary will disavow any knowledge of your actions. This message will self-destruct in five seconds. Good luck, Ethan. Hello and welcome <laughs> to episode 347 of the Filmmakers Podcast. This is a podcast where we talk filmmaking from indie film to studio films, high-end TV and everything in between. How to get them made, how to make them and how to try not to royally F them up in a very, very humble opinion. Because on today's show, it's a very, very special show. We have the director, the writer, the superstar himself, Christopher Macquarie. Ladies and gentlemen, he's on this week's Filmmakers Podcast. This isn't a joke. This was Mission Possible. This Woo-hoo. is uh, one of the most exciting <laughs> guests we've had. It mm. really is. He's really up there. Some of his credits include... Let's, let's read off his writer credits first. He wrote Public Access, The Usual Suspects, which he won an Oscar for. Rightly so. Indeed. Valkyrie, The Tourist, The Mummy, Jack the Giant Slayer, Edge of Tomorrow. And his writing, directing credits uh, include Way of the Gun... A lot of people's favourite, that one. Jack Reacher, Mission Impossible, Rogue Nation, Mission Impossible, Fallout, Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, Part 1, and Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, Part 2, which we can't talk about that until 2025. But we're here to talk about Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, Part 2. Did we mention Top Gun Maverick? I feel like we should definitely mention that one. We should, because he also wrote and produced that as well. What a legend, this man is. I know. I'm Giles Alderson. He is. And you are? Dom Lenoir. And Dom Lenoir is a writer, director and a producer. He's made three feature films as a director, including Winter Ridge, which won 16 awards and starred Hannah Waddingham. Uh, he produced over 10 features now, including, very recently, When the Screaming Starts, I Love My Mum and The Unreason. And this is Giles Alderson. Oh, hello. Writer, <laughs> writer, director and producer. Known for Millennium Studio Movie The Dare, yes. um, World of Darkness, uh, Arthur and Merlin Knights of Camelot. His most recent directed film included The Stranger in Our Bed, starring Samantha Bond and Emily Berrington. Wolves of War, a World War II feature film. He also recently produced Three Day Millionaire, starring Colin Meany, which got up to number five on the Netflix chart recently. Hey! But not enough about us. So what do we talk about, Dom Lenoir, with... This legend that is Christopher McQuarrie. We talk about story, story, story. Woohoo! We talk about making the audience care about action scenes. 
and we're talking about writing story around specific castings. Uh, Mission Impossible as a great example. Yeah, we also talk about his past, how he started, how he started working on Mission Impossible as well, and his work with Tom Cruise. And we touch on his debut movies, Public Access, Usual Suspects, and Way of the Gun. We also uh, asked you lovely people for some audience questions. We had some incredible questions, but obviously with someone like Christopher with so much valuable information, we only had a limited amount of time. Yeah, and we asked as many as we could. Christopher was amazing with his time, wasn't he, Dom? He really really went there with some of his answers as well just what a guy he was and, and I think this is such a this is such a fascinating episode because we really did tie it into story and we really did tie it into performance and, and I think the sort of the the trio of, of of how this all comes together with the writing the casting the performance uh, and and the storytelling it really is a fascinating insight into you know the genius of making a, a, a blockbuster movie that actually has meaning and and doesn't lose your your audience. Yeah, he understands story at such a deep level. Like what what scene doesn't work, what scene does work, how to get feedback from people um, in audience screenings. All of these fascinating things that you need to fix to make a, a, a film gripping. Mm, and we love this film. Uh, I'm a huge Mission Impossible fan anyway and I couldn't wait to see this and I really wasn't disappointed honestly it was just brilliant it was so fun so thoughtful so intelligent so the kind of movie that you go to the cinema for Mm. this is what cinemas I feel are made for this kind of a movie in today's age it's just fantastic Uh, it is in cinemas from the 10th of July so I suggest you find the biggest screen you can. With the Dolbyest sound With the Dolbyest sound possible. <laughs> <laughs> um, and even more exciting is next week, uh, we're kind of doing a Mission Impossible Part 2, but it's not mm. Dead Reckoning Part 2, it's the Podcast Part 2, because we are pod, going to... Pod Reckoning. A pod Reckoning, I like it. We're going to have on for you, Eddie Hamilton. Yes. The editor of... Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 and yeah, Part 2 the Eddie, Eddie tour you could say the, the Eddie tour got you on fire there's going to be also two other guests absolutely outrageous guests which we're not going to tell you yet but um, we're not going to tell them you will be very very excited when you when you see and it was filmed so um, we've got something special really special for this plan yes so that will be on YouTube for you keep, keep your eyes and ears peeled but that will be next week Also announcing the post-production Demystified, a Zoom course for producers and directors. It is uh, Saturday, July the 22nd from 1pm UK time onwards. We have teamed up with The Cutting Room to offer a comprehensive walkthrough of the entire post-production process. More info to that is in the show notes. So thank you so much for listening. I hope you get from this as much as we did. What an mm. absolute delight to talk to Christopher. Um, honestly, I felt like I was in the presence of genius um, with mm. him. It was just incredible, wasn't it? I was like, yes, yeah. you know exactly what you're talking about in the film set. So knowledgeable. Yeah. Everything that goes into that, that that man's brain just is pure story, and you will learn so much on that. I think that's, that's the real takeaway for me. Totally agree. Let's get to it then, ladies and gentlemen. Um, this is... <laughs> I love saying this. This is... The director of Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, Christopher McQuarrie.
Well, welcome to the Filmmakers Podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. So we're very much a, a filmmaking podcast. So we're going to go into the details of how you make films, how you got there, the fun and tricks and the challenges along the way. Okay. First of all, a massive, massive, massive congratulations on the movie. We, we watched it last night. It was unbelievable. Thank you. Thank you. I, I have no perspective, so I'm just relieved to hear that. Because we, we literally were blown away, weren't we? Sitting yeah. there in the cinema going, wow. I'm a big fan anyway of the mm. series. Ah. Always loved them and I always look forward to them like James Bond. I've always been like, I can't wait for the next mission. Your last movie was fantastic. And then mm. going to this one, we were like, okay, what's going to happen now? What are we going to see from these characters? Is that something that you look for when you're starting out with finding the story? How do you weave in what could work for you, you know, when you're trying to think of the next mission? Um, the, the, the biggest thing is, uh, is always character, the character journey. Um, mm. I, I will always hear Tom going all the way back to the first time I worked on mission was Ghost Protocol. Mm -hmm. He's always looking for ways, the word he uses is to be hooked in to the character, to be invested in the character. Uh, and and these movies, because they're about big global stakes and, and world-threatening plots, uh, that creates a lot of obstacles for being hooked into the character. It's not enough to, to have the character needing to save the world. It's pretty obvious, and it's actually an abstract notion. Mm. Um, the idea of millions of lives at stake, those are lives you don't really see on screen and it, it all tends to become abstract. So how do we how do we get the audience invested in the character, feeling affinity and feeling empathy for that character as quickly as you can and then and then maintaining that and turning up the 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 pressure on that throughout the story. In this, Tom is all about saving the people around him and yeah. we care as much about them as he does. Yeah. Uh well, it's it's a it's about placing him in a position where he has to choose between his duty, which is saving the world, and his his personal relationships, you know, keeping mm -hmm. his friends alive, and we've pushed that a little bit further with each with each and every one, and then and then especially here in in Dead Reckoning Part One. Um, Simon came onto the franchise in th Mission Three mm -hmm. before I was involved in it, and I remember meeting him on the set on Ghost Protocol, on the day when Tom was doing the gloves. He was being told how to use the gloves yeah, to climb, climb up, up the Burj Khalifa. Yes. And and I had just landed and was brought to set and looked through the door of a hotel room, and there was Brad Bird and Tom Cruise and Simon Pegg. This was my first moment on Mission Impossible. And Tom saw me in the hallway, and he said, come here, come here, come here, make you come in here. And he's got the gloves on, and he said, "We're trying to explain these gloves. They're, they're, the, the explanation's too complicated. It's too wordy, and uh, and and we need a simple way of expressing how the gloves work." And I said, "Well, how about blue is glue and red is dead?" And Simon Pegg and Brad Bird were looking at me, going, "Who is this guy? Like, just, <laughs> where did he come from?" Looked off the street. Yeah, literally. and Tom was like, "Oh, uh, guys, this this McHugh. We worked together on Valkyrie, and he's he's going to be rewriting the movie." And everybody was sort of. I was, and I looked like I had. They were all looking at me like I had snakes coming out of my ears. I bet. And Ghost Protocol was uh, ten weeks into a seventeen-week shoot when I was parachuted in, mm. and they'd shot all the big exterior stuff. Uh, and they'd done the whole climbing up the Burj. But they hadn't done 
what I call the reasons portion mm. of it, and the and the reasons are are the thing that we that, that we contend with most uh, in on set in phone booths in cars. You put you squeeze them into smaller and smaller sets because a lot of times the reasons need fine tuning. You can you can reshoot and alter the reasons. You can't reshoot. You can't go back to the Burge and shoot him on the side of the building, mm. at least not easily. So I had come in and and was looking at the reasons for the story as an outsider who was not immersed in the movie and had a different perspective on it and said, okay, we got to rewrite all of these things that you haven't shot yet. Mm-hmm. And you have to reshoot specific things that you have shot, but the, only because, and I could only do that because the sets still existed. Right. Uh, and that led to my first conversation with Simon Pegg. And he, I ended up in a trailer with Simon Pegg, Jeremy Renner, and Paula Patton and was explaining to them how everything they had been shooting for the last 10 weeks was no longer the story they were shooting. <laughs> what a great intro. So popular guy. <laughs> oh, my God. And they were and – and now they're looking at me like mm-hmm. I'm a lawyer who's come in to, mm. to repossess their car and evict them from their home. Mm. And Jeremy and Paula were, were, were completely thrown because suddenly Jeremy Renner's backstory got tossed out. Uh, and Paula Patton's story was changing uh, uh, right before her eyes. And Simon was losing this mass gag that was the big mass gag in the, in the third act of the movie. And because I had the perspective of not having worked on the film, I could see that the mass gag cost $15 million dollars because of all of the complications associated with getting one to that mass gag. Mm. That was a big learning experience for later missions because you get tunnel vision, you get you get caught up in things you think you have to do mm. and you forget how you got there. And there and and so to have moments of clarity in real time while you're making your own movie and say, "Do I really need this? Why am I And as soon as I say, "We have to do this," I ask myself, why? Why do you have to do it? Mm. Is it? Do you have to do that because of a, a rule of cinema, or do you have to do that because of a rule you made up? You you wrote that rule. You can unwrite it. And Paula left. Jeremy left. They they were they were. I don't want to say they were satisfied, but they were they were accepting of their fates. And Simon was really struggling with this mass gag thing. And I said, why is the mass gag important? Why does it matter to you? And he said, because I don't want to just be the computer guy. And I see if this is the one thing I had to do in the movie that wasn't just being the computer guy. Mm. And I always want this character to evolve. And I said, if I can get you something other than the mask gag that that isn't a computer thing, will that be okay? Yeah. And Simon said, Yeah, I just want I just want Benji to 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 do more than just a computer. Mm. Uh, so that became that that became a, a series of negotiations whereby I presented the end of the movie to the studio, who were very reluctant to make changes this late. They were they were just panicked because we were seriously altering the movie. They also had a preconceived notion of what they wanted Jeremy Renner's arc to be, mm-hmm. and so I pitched them this very reduced sequence. Uh, because Brad Bird had pre-visualized the entire parking garage sequence. I don't yeah. know if you remember that whole, okay. Mm-hmm. My assumption is you've seen the movie. Yeah. Yes, of course. Um, yeah. 
So if I sound presumptuous, that's why. So the parking garage sequence had been pre-visualized within an inch of its life. Brad's an animator, and he mm-hmm. had he had totally figured out that sequence. There was then this sequence on the page with the rest of the team, which could in no way, shape, or form be integrated with this parking garage scene. And a lot of the script was written like that. There were fantastic ideas, but there was no way to edit them together. Uh, there was no way to interlace them. The upstairs-downstairs sequence was the same way. There was there was a great scene upstairs and a great scene downstairs, but you couldn't actually realistically intercut them. And they, you what you had to do with that scene is write it in real time. You had to actually edit it on the page. And because I had a lot of experience in editorial, that really served me on Ghost Protocol. I was editing... I was giving Brad Bird the pieces that he needed to to serve him in the editing room. And everything was being done with Brad's understanding. I would walk up to Brad and say, here's what we're doing. Um, so uh, the the parking garage sequence, when I went and looked at the previs, which thankfully was very much like it was in the finished film, I could see places where I could cut away for short periods of time. When Tom and the villain are running up a staircase... You could cut away for 30 seconds. When they were fighting, you could cut away for five or 10 seconds. And everything that you see Paula and Jeremy and Simon doing in the third act of the movie is written in those segments where for the amount of time you could cut away. It was all written within the limitations of how long can I actually leave before when I cut back to the garage, I'd been gone too long. And that, of course, meant that this big, giant sequence that was way too expensive anyway, and there were there were budget problems, and they were looking for ways to cut costs, it could be dramatically reduced. Not, to, not at the expense of the movie, but actually in service of the movie. Wow. And I pitched this idea, and the studio was naturally excited about the idea because it was saving a lot of money. And once I got them on board with the idea, and in the pitch that I gave them, Jeremy Renner kills the other villain, the the the, the number two guy, uh, with with whom he is fighting throughout that sequence. And the studio loved it; they were very excited. And I got to the end of it, and I said, "There's one more idea, which I think takes it a step beyond, and that is this idea that Benji actually kills the villain and saves Jeremy." And of course, there was immediate resistance to that idea. But I had, I, I, and that's why I didn't pitch it right away. I saved the idea that I knew they would re- reject. Mm-hmm. I got them over the finish line with the rest of the sequence, and then, and then said, "Okay, but here's why." And I knew there was one person in the room who loved father-son stories, and rather than try to convince the whole room, I did a Twelve Angry Men. I focused on this one person. And pitch this as a father-son story. It was about how Simon's character goes from being this guy from behind the curtain and comes out and becomes this agent and saves this. I pitched all the brotherhood and friendship of it. And it convinced, I knew I knew it would convince this one person because it was their kind of movie. And they just one by one kind of mm. talked each other into it. That's the, that's the, the, the diplomacy part of writing and as opposed to 
what I used to do, which was the bull in a china shop passionately arguing for what I believed it had to be. Um, that's an example of of how these things evolve. And, and now we write the movies that way. We give ourselves the out and we're constantly questioning it. And now I will, Tom will come to me with a big idea or sometimes a small idea, come to me with a, with a small idea happening in the midst of a big sequence. And because I think of things in terms of the rules you're creating for yourself and the rules that, that you cannot uncreate, I will come to Tom and say, this moment costs this much money and it takes this many days and it's this much resource. How, how much do you want this moment? And we will evaluate that and say, yeah, that's actually worth it. That's actually in terms of what the audience is getting from it. That's a big, that's a big value. It's a, it's a big moment and it's a big feeling. It's worth the investment. And sometimes we'll look at it and just say, God, that's a, that's a lot for a little? And is there another way we can get that same feeling, but reduce those? So you're looking, when you're looking at Dead Reckoning, you're looking at the cost versus feeling ratio being constantly thrown out. I think that's one of the things where you succeed, and I think a lot of filmmakers don't. And I think that was one of the reasons I love Top Gun so much as well, is, um, which you're involved in. It, it, it's it doesn't matter how much action you have. If you don't care about the characters, you could have a, a 15, 20, 30 minute sequence and the audience just switches off. Whereas if you have a five minute action sequence and you've built up these characters to really love them, then they become incredible. You, you become, you actually become numb. You become exhausted. And there's a, there's a school of filmmaking that is entirely in pursuit of one emotion. And that emotion is awe. And, Awe is amazing for that long. Awe is amazing for big establishing shots. Awe is amazing for emotional catharsis, like a specific moment. But when everything's awesome, nothing is awesome, at least to me. There are, there are fans of nonstop awesome. Sure. And they've been educated. They, they've learned that that's mom's home cooking. The same way my movies that I make are based on my mom's home cooking home cooking mm. and there are people who find that frankly kind of staid and boring i totally understand why certain people look at my films and go you know they they just they, they just don't get my style right. and uh and i want to be very careful with that word because i i don't know that i have one i'm not in pursuit of a style mm. and dead reckoning is is as far out as i have gone in terms of no touchstones and no 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 references per se we in in rogue nation it was self-conscious winks and nods to the parallax view and three days of the condor and movies that i loved and we were doing we were doing little nudges and things like that that in retrospect all that stuff is kind of cute and i and i i i it's not that i regret doing it it's just i've outgrown it with dead reckoning there was absolutely no specific creative vision, I put that in air quotes, that I was in pursuit of, I went in saying, I'm going to find what this film's style is. I'm going to find the look of the film. It's all going to be determined by the necessities of story. The one thing that's vital and that you pointed out is character and emotion. And in Top Gun Maverick, the formula was very, very simple. Top Gun Maverick, in every scene, Maverick's, the pressure on Maverick had to increase. 
and we whiteboarded the entire structure of the screenplay that I was handed Mm -hmm. and said, we're not going to change the structure of the movie. We're just going to increase the pressure on Maverick in every single scene. Mm -hmm. And we cannot move on to the next scene until we've increased the pressure on Maverick. So much so that in the middle of the movie, the beach volleyball scene, Mm -hmm. we increased the pressure on Maverick yet again. And it threw the whole movie out of whack. The We couldn't get the love story to work and we couldn't understand why. And it's because in that scene, John Hamm originally walks up to him and says, why are we playing games? You know, he has mm-hmm. that whole scene. And Maverick answers him. And then John Hamm kneels down next to Maverick and says, the mission's been moved up one week. And he pats him on the shoulder and walks away. It's a little bit uh, of a F you. Yes, yes. And then- and then the audience rejected the love scene. They were just rejecting the relationship between Penny and Maverick. There was there was another scene that came after it, and then they went home, and mm-hmm. she invited him in. And Tom said, I think we need to cut this scene between Penny and Mav before the love scene. It's just kind of a bummer of a scene where he's feeling bad about what just happened. And I said, I think we need to cut deeper. And he knew, and I saw Tom's face. He went, oh, my God, oh, my God. He goes, and and I I said, I don't know if it'll work. He goes, it's absolutely going to work. It's absolutely going to work. So we cut John Hamm and his blocking out of the scene. And when you see John Hamm walking away from Tom, and Tom's watching the football game continue, John Hamm's actually not there. We took him from another shot and stuck him in, walking away. So we changed the blocking of the scene. And suddenly the movie had this lift and you realized there was the audience just needed a break from all the pressure. Yes, yes. But the audience can't diagnose that. No test screen is going to tell you that. Mm. What the audience is telling you is I don't like this part of the movie that you know in a vacuum is working. Why isn't it working with everything mm. else? That's And that's where the testing process for us is really critical. It's not for the audience to tell us how to make the movie. Mm. It's for the audience telling us this is where this is where the this is where the movie's not working for me. Every note, the even the worst note I've ever received, the subtext of it is help me like your movie. Mm. I don't it's it's not the solutions I'm looking for. It's the diagnosis. And what Tom and I talk about all the time is a a pain in your arm can be an indication of a of a heart attack. Yeah. Amputating the arm will not Stop will not the solve attack. the heart attack. No, totally, the, totally. And the, so, so the the note is usually a literal one. The audience the audience doesn't like the love scene. The solution is cut the love scene. And Tom and I are looking at going. No, mm. why don't they like it? And what's 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 the what are the things leading up to the love scene that, that make, it a, make it make it a problem? How do you, where does this come from? As in this, you understanding a lot of this stuff when you first wrote Public Access, and then obviously you obviously wrote so many other things before Usual Suspects. But this actual knowledge of understanding what people want and saying let's go for story, where do you think it comes from? Well, I I and I I do not mean this to insult anybody involved in the production. I find public access to be an objectively terrible movie. And it was a movie that was made oddly enough, much in the way movies would, I would make movies later on. We were scrambling to make a movie. Mm -hmm. We were given the opportunity to make a film. We, we had, we, we, the, the, the plot was just thrown out there. Because it was th- it was thrown out as an idea on the spot, and it was an adherence to rules that we created and did not have the experience to uncreate. 
and uh, and it only worked. And I say that in the most figurative sense, in that it went to the Sundance Film Festival and it split the grand jury prize. Mm-hmm. And that's because there were four jurors, and two of them hated our movie, and two of them hated the other movie. <laughs> right. <laughs> and now there are five jurors, so right. that'll never happen again. Got you. Um, uh, and because it had a political thrust to it, it was in the right place at the right time. But if you step back and you look at that movie objectively, it has there. There is depth for, con, for considering how much it was made for. There's some. There's some fairly inventive filmmaking, but it's a it's a mess of a movie. But you got it made. That's the we thing. got it's it so made. hard for mm. a first time. But then and then when we it, well yes, and that that was a that was a testament to a million other factors that led to that. Mm. But then with usual suspects, suspects it came to light in a very different way. I with public access, everything was in motion when I came on board. Mm-hmm. With the usual suspects, it was put to me to come up with a story and specifically to come up with a story uh, for a, I had come up with the title and then I came up with the poster and then I was told to come up with a movie to go with that poster. Oh, wow. Okay. And then I came up with the ending of the movie and everything was reverse engineered from that. So the usual suspects is all a magic trick that's focused on an ending. It's all working towards a punchline. Mm-hmm. And it's information. It's all dialogue. It's all exposition. Yeah. It's all information that's in service of one specific emotional result. Top Gun Maverick is all emotion. Mm. And and it's all emotion wrapped around training. I'm basically taking the audience. We are basically taking the audience and training them to go on this mission in the third act of the movie mm. and investing them in all of the characters so that when those characters go on that mission and things go wrong, you don't need anybody telling you what's going wrong. You know it's going mm. wrong. Yes. You don't need to understand how specific it, how specifically hard it is to hit that target and what challenges they're going to be. You've been educated into all of it so that in the third act of the movie, you're just experiencing it with them. Top Gun is the crystalline example of your initial question, mm. which is how do you, or your initial question is how do you take the audience and put them into that so that they are experiencing the emotion? If you watch Mission Impossible, there nothing happens where you don't know what's supposed to happen mm. before mm. it doesn't happen. Yeah. The, the team is always planning and plotting and scheming, and that's what all those flash forwards are for. It's all to create a sense of here's what's got to happen. And, it, and if, if any one of these things doesn't happen, everything's going to go wrong. Everything that's supposed to happen allows you to go, oh, this is not, you're, you're now in the experience with Ethan. So how, how do you work in, because obviously you, you have a really good grasp on story and characters. How do you then create a freshness? Do you do re- rehearsals with the actors or do you kind of like to throw them into it? Like, How does that, how does that work with you? You cast Haley Atwell. You cast Isai Morales. You cast um, Shea Wiggum, Greg Tarzan Davis. You throw in new and interesting and compelling characters who disrupt that stasis mm. with these characters with whom you mm. are familiar. You, you have a familiarity and an affinity have you if assuming you have seen previous missions mm. we don't assume Which you should have done we yes. don't <laughs> yeah we don't we don't ask you to yeah. and that's a critical thing about top gun as well mm. 
We don't ask you to remember the first Top Gun. We don't assume you have seen it. We don't take your appreciation for that movie for granted. We don't assume you're a fan. Fan service and fandom is poison. It is, it is, it is deadly. Mm. It is, it's, it's great when applied like a, a very, very, very yes. strong spice, very yes. judiciously. Mm. If you happen to have seen the other movies, great. Yeah. I don't count on it because what happens, the danger of that is I'm asking you to leave the narrative and remember another narrative and come back. Now, one, now one, two things are certain to happen. One, you, if you know the movies, you still left the narrative and I have to spend precious energy bringing you back. Yes. I'm trying to immerse you in a story so that you're, you're not aware the story is happening until it's over. Or you didn't see that other movie, and you're suddenly aware that everybody around you knows something you don't. And in either case, you've disrupted the narrative, you've broken the chain, and you do so at your peril. You can do that, that's fine. Just know that when you do that, you've broken a stream of consciousness that you've created from the very first frame of the movie, which is unavoidable, mm -hmm. but you, you're always going to have some disruption. I would say Maverick was was as successful as it did because the, the disruptions to that chain mm -hmm. are very, very, very minor and and you're and you're almost instantly swept back into the narrative. You put that movie on, you watch it, mm. and you're along for the ride and you don't have to think about what's happening. It's not to say that I don't want you thinking. I just want you thinking about the movie after. Mm, yes. I don't want you working to watch the movie. Mm. And you can feel that when you're watching certain films. You can feel the filmmaker's intention. You understand what they want you to feel. But you're not necessarily feeling it as much as you are putting it together in your head. You are, in in certain instances, giving them a pass. I see. And saying, this is a little bit incoherent, but I kind of knew what they meant. I, I find that, you know, I, I, I find that to be a a failure of imagination on my part. If I do that, if I'm at a place where I'm bullshitting my way through the action, mm. I'm it's it's a crime. I'm actually you're I'm asking you to do the work and pay for the experience of doing it. Right. So that's what you're feeling when you're watching these movies. It's just we're working that much harder to remove you from the effort of watching the movie. Mm. And the only effort I want you feeling is whether to reminding yourself to breathe. Mm. And um, this film does it brilliantly. Like it didn't let up. Uh, it just kept going in this wonderful way. And those moments when you did get the information, you were like, I need to know this information. Yes. I need to listen hard yes. because I might miss something. And that's genius. It's really skillful filmmaking. Oh, I suppose it's, it's true. After public access, obviously the, what, there was obviously other bits and pieces you'd written in between, but then the way of the gun happened. Mm. Maybe talk really briefly about yeah. that and how that's influenced your work now as a director. Yeah, so The Way of the Gun was a film I didn't want to make. I wanted to make okay. uh, anything but another crime film. Right. And I was met with constant, after winning the award for the, the Oscar for The Usual Suspects, I thought, now, you know, I was in the, I was in the Coppola seat. Coppola mm -hmm. won the Oscar for writing Patton. That's right. And he went on to be Coppola. And I thought, oh, now I can parlay this into... And I was being summarily rejected everywhere I went. Nobody, and I admittedly was was way too ambitious 
in what I was trying to do. I didn't know enough. I didn't understand how to build slowly. The guy you want to look at is Ryan Johnson. There's a mm, guy who just yeah, understood how to, to methodically build his career right. and push himself further and further. Matt Reeves is another guy, just very, you know, just very methodically built his career, pushed himself further and further. Don't emulate my stupidity. Emulate their very <laughs> smart, very, very rational, uh, uh, frugal filmmaking. They're also not indulgent. As, as big and as ambitious as they get, they're not. They're not indulgent filmmakers. Uh, Nolan, another one. Mm. Chris Nolan, probably the the the, the crystalline example of a guy went from following to mm. Memento to uh, to Insomnia. You watched yeah. him just kind of slowly spreading his wings, and he's mm. always very conscious of the cost of his film, who his films are for. Uh, you know, he's he's already marketing the movie as he's making the movie. He's very very smart about how the industry works and and how to control all that stuff. I'm I I I did not spend the first 20 years of my career doing those things and that's why the second half of my career is the way that it is. And the way of the gun was an opportunity to make a movie that I didn't want to make and I made it with both middle fingers extended. I made a film that was an attack on what I thought were the tropes of that genre. It ends up being a movie that is compared to Tarantino while all I was doing was trying to tear down that that what what that had become mm. and and it also was a very deliberately opaque movie. I wanted to make a movie for smart people, yeah who liked dissecting movies the way that I did, and I made a movie that forced you to have to do that, and you see in the reaction the hostility that came not just at the movie, but at me personally, mm. that when you bring people into a world and then ask them to do that much work, they reject the movie and they, and they actually feel a contempt for the movie as they, as they did for that film. It's not to say that you can't be ambiguous. The more ambiguous you are, the more work you're asking the audience to do, the more work you ask them to do, the more frustrated they become with the film. And it, there is a level of frustration wherein they will they will attack. So, how do you find that balance? I mean, I mean, yeah, looking at those kind of examples, like I mean, like the Usual Suspects, or mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, any any film where you're revealing nuggets of information, you've got to, you know, you've got to sort of be on side with the detective. Like, how do you find that balance of them? keeping the audience not knowing what's going to happen, but also avoiding what you're talking about with the shortfall. When I came to working with Tom, he really crystallized it. He said, confusion leads to boredom and mm. boredom leads to frustration. Mm. And he, like, he just sees it. For him, it's all a mathematical formula that, that, that is in no way, shape or form formulaic. It's all, for him, it's all emotional. So Tom will, Tom's notes on a scene he might he he might not have the solution. He's just he's I'm not I'm not connected to this character. And I'll write a scene that solves all the problems logically. And Tom will read it and be like, I'm not I'm just there's something about it. I'm rejecting the character. I'm rejecting the character. And and it forces but now when he gives me a filter to reevaluate the scene, he'll give me a note. If you give me a note, if you watch the movie and mm -hmm. said, if you watch Dead Reckoning and say, I in fact I just read someone's comment on the film about how the dialogue, they, they had a note about the dialogue, it was very critical. 
note about the dialogue. I'm going to watch the film again tonight with the crew, and I'm going to watch it through that filter. Okay. I'm going to say, why did the person interpret the film that way? I'm not going to walk away from it going, hey, I got really good reviews on Dead Reckoning, moving on. I look at all the criticisms of that movie, and don't take them personally. I look, I reevaluate the movie that way to say, okay, why are they looking at it that way? Is it something I can fix? Is it something I need to fix? Is it just their taste versus my taste? Or, oh, I see their point there. That's all Tom and I do. We're, we are, we are as critical of our own work as anyone on earth could be. He, the first thing he says to me every time we finish a movie and the credits roll, he turns to me and says, we can do better. Mm -hmm. And when, and when we look at, I was misquoted about, we're going to kill Top Gun. That's not what I'm saying. We're, we're, we look at it and go, we've got to crush Top Gun. Like you've got, we, we mm. got to beat those guys. Mm. I'm not out to beat John Wick and James Bond and Fast and Furious. I, I, I love those movies. I love sure. those filmmakers. Yeah. I want to see those filmmakers win. And I don't do what they do and they don't do what I do. I can't have 20 minute extended gunfights in Mission Impossible. I can't make an R rated Mission Impossible. Mm. Um, and, and so I look at that and I was like, that's great. And that's always there for me to enjoy. I'm looking at our own movies and saying, how could we have done this better? How could we make this that much more immersive, that much more engaging? And I apply that to a Top Gun Maverick. I would now apply that to a Valkyrie, which I, which I didn't and couldn't in my capacity. Um, so it doesn't really matter if Tom and I were making... Mission Impossible or Top Gun Maverick or some version of Seven, mm -hmm. we would still apply it the same way. And those, and but which, by the way, that's a film he and I study constantly. We're right. looking at that film because Seven is a bleak, dark, mm. gnarly yeah. movie that's imminently rewatchable. Mm -hmm. There's nothing punishing about Seven, right down to what's in the box. It's because it works within the internal justice of that movie. Mm. Chinatown, it's a really black ending, mm. but it works within the internal justice of that movie. This is not to say all movies need to make you feel as good as Top Gun Maverick. They need to be satisfying. They need to be satisfying within the world that you created, and they need to be proportionate to the audience for that kind of movie. Seven's not for everybody. When your budget gets above a certain limit, it damn well better be. Mm. That's something Cameron understands. Cameron's making these big, giant mm. Avatar movies. It's like everybody on the planet's got to like this movie for this movie to be viable. Yes. And that's, that's, so that's how we, I hope that makes sense. Yeah, that's kind of how does. we're evaluating it. Yeah, you mentioned there about people feeling satisfied. How do you then rewrite constantly and retweak stuff and go, okay, that, like you said, you and Tom discuss it constantly, but how, what I'm seeing when you get stuck, what happens when you go, oh, I've just hit a brick wall with this scene. That's, that's why you rewrite constantly because you're looking at it and going, okay, I did, I did this and I did that, but the reasons for it happening aren't satisfying. And where, where, when we get stuck, invariably it, we get stuck because of plot. Mm -hmm. We get, and no one doesn't get stuck. No one doesn't in in the in the with the pressure of production and budget and schedule you're and and we do it all the time and there are moments when Tom and I will look at each other and go we've made a lot of movies how could we have been this dumb like how could we have made that mistake <laughs> and we've made this mistake before how did we make it again 
you're in the midst of all the pressure and everything that's going on, you you convince yourself that certain things are having an effect that they're not. We're better at it Mm -hmm. now than we were. And we're constantly stepping back from things and looking at it and saying, forget what I wanted the audience to feel. What did I actually communicate? Mm -hmm. What does this frame actually say? Where is the eye actually going? And I've learned to look at things with wide angle vision. And I've learned to look at things with a, not a critical eye, but as close to an objective eye as I can, as I can get. And I, and as a result, you just, you have, and that's another reason why test audiences don't scare me. I sit behind the focus group and I listen to them roast my movie. Wow. There's no emotional pain to that anymore. There is that, well, that's the effect I created. Mm. That's what I, you know, I might not agree with you. I might not, I might decide "Mm, that's not worth fixing, but at least I know, I know going in and I'm not surprised. So there, there are going to be criticisms for this movie, they're not going to surprise me. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. What were some of the challenges in that department, maybe with plot uh, or the story not working or scenes not working in, mm-hmm. in Dead Reckoning that you really had to sort of work maybe with the actors as you went along? Ilsa's motive throughout the movie, yeah. and, and there, was a different, there was a different scene originally. We reshot her whole scene where she explains her piece of the plot. God, yeah. Yes. Simply because our rule was don't give Ilsa plot. <laughs> it's right. like plot is like this it's mundane and it's it's really really it's it's just very very hard and we like the emotion between those characters mm. and i made i gave ilsa a very different motive and a very different backstory and the audience quite rightly sensed it they rejected it was too convenient it was a coincidence right and so our adherence to a rule led to a scene which the audience rejected and in and quite literally was our collaborator in that going i don't buy that mm. i don't buy it their spidey sense was tingling and mm. they were like it's too convenient so there we were in doing what we believed was in service of the character and but we, it wasn't in service of the story and story is king always always and that's just Tom and I just constantly saying that all the time. And actors will come to us and say, hey, can I try this? And you could say, yeah, but that takes us off story. And and it, it just becomes a detraction. Try it, absolutely do it, and you never know what we'll discover. But if we don't go with it, here's why. And it becomes a very democratic process that way. The mm-hmm. actors know they can create. They don't get a pride of authorship. There is no ego. And if stuff does... It, 
if one out of 10 things make it in the movie, it's like, you invented that. Palm Clementif doing a little heart mm, on the glass. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> that's Palm. Right. And Vanessa Kirby covering the phone when she's entering the code, that's that's Vanessa. And Henry Cerny rewrites every single line of dialogue just by adding words that are totally appropriate to the character. He added the word willingly <laughs> to a sentence. Not one of our allies has willingly whispered one word of it to us. When you add the word willingly, you imply in that mm -hmm. sentence, we're spying on everybody. Yes, yes. And he, and so of course you're like, well, that's, not only is that perfect, it's good writing that makes me look good. But <laughs> It's on story. And, but then he does little things like designator, base mm. note, lowercase, all one word. That's Henry. Right. He just added that to the scene. <laughs> and because he's having a one-sided con one conversation, conversation, he could do that. Yeah. Um, those were all things that add flourishes and add character, and it adds texture that we love. There are other things where we a deeper relationship between two characters, you're suddenly starting to think about things other than where we want the story to go. Mm. And we and we pair them back. Vanessa Kirby in the train sequence has left an entire movie in the editing room of just I can imagine the, the absurd number of options that she gave us that were so amazing. Mm -hmm. There was such phenomenal performance, but they you were found yourself getting frustrated by the movie because it was taking away from the ticking clock, and you were getting you were you were get you were getting less and less invested in the character. Mm, yes. In that scene, yes, you know the character I'm talking about. Yes, um, so you that's that's so we're always kind of playing what I call clutch and gas. It's how much how you if you're if you ever driven a a, a manual car, mm -hmm. most of the people I'm talking to yes. haven't and never will. It's it's, it's like it's, a manual in England. Yes, yes you like a manual. Do. You're yeah, letting yeah. off the clutch as you're pushing down on the gas, and and vice versa. You're always constantly kind of feeling that balance as you're doing it and the and the actors all know you're free to give us options you're free to experiment you're free to vanessa kirby will never give me the same line reading two times in a row wow. she'll always give me something sensational and she's having an out-of-body experience she looks at the monitor afterwards and watches her performance and says she's so weird wow. she's looking okay. at the widow as a as another person yeah um and and specifically because of what Vanessa is doing in the third act, yeah. it will be years before people recognize how brilliant it is that she's doing what she's doing because of what's happening mm, in the story. In the story, yes. It's, that is a phenomenal, phenomenal performance. Mm -hmm. it, and looking at the colors that she goes through f from uh, everything on the spectrum, from vulnerability to fearsome intimidation. Yes. She's a dangerous, dangerous, dangerous character. Yeah. And and manages to convey that without ever having to point a gun or make a threat. She's she's a very, very, very she, powerful person. She does presence. have a, a wildly unpredictable edge to her acting that I think is absolutely fascinating to watch. Like there's a spark in her eye or, or something when she's when she's giving giving those mm. characters. It, it adds so much to the story. She, I got to say, she, all the women in the movie, mm. uh, really all the actors in the movie, when you look at the, the performances in the film, you're looking at inventive but inherently present actors, each of whom brings their own their own subtleties and their own 
uh, their own personalities to it because we don't write a role and then cast an actor. Mm -hmm. We cast an actor and then tailor the role. Clever. Yeah. Everything you're seeing coming from those actors is coming from within them as much as it's coming from the screenplay. The screenplay is following them around and mm. saying, how about this? Yes. That's why when you, it, after you've watched this movie a couple of times, when it comes out on home video, I urge everyone to watch the movie with the sound off and just follow Haley Atwell through the story oh, yes. and watch her performance, her expressions, her, the, 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 the rhythmic subtlety of of her behavior. Watch uh watch Vanessa Kirby, her her mannerisms. Watch watch Tarzan standing behind people. Yes. Yeah. Watch try not to watch Palm Clementiev wherever she is yes, in the frame. You can't help but watch her face. Yes. Yeah. And then at the top of all of that, really critically, watch Tom Cruise. And Tom Cruise, who has a very different responsibility, and these are his words, he'll he'll say, I have a different responsibility as a leading man than I do as a supporting player. Frank T.J. Maxey, Mackie. Frank oh, T.J. Mackey. Yeah. Incredible performance. Has yeah. amazing performance. He has different responsibilities. He's not a leading man. He's not carrying the role. And that's not a character you have to care about in the same way as you do about a leading man in a protagonist-driven narrative. Mm. An ensemble narrative, you have different responsibilities. And so so for Tom, he looks at Frank T.J. Mackey as it's a performance of which he's very proud. He looks at that and he was like, that's not a challenging performance. Like, that's not a high wire act. Mm. That to him is kind of just like, he's letting it rip. Collateral. He's yeah, just like, letting it rip. I'm the bad guy. Yeah. I, could just, I could just be a bastard. And we tried to bring that into Fallout. Right. The whole idea was that he was going to be playing John Lark. He was going to be going undercover. It mm -hmm. was, Fallout was going to be Ethan Hunt's deep cover, where he had to be this other guy. Mm. And it was all to allow him to be a bastard. And here's how quickly it goes off the rails. He had his first scene with Vanessa Kirby, and they're on the Seine River in Paris. Mm -hmm. And Vanessa's character was written as something completely different, very flighty, kind of frivolous, fun character, mm. very broad. Mm. And while we are doing, now imagine Tom, I'm shooting over Tom's shoulder, I'm, and I stand next to the camera. I'm very, very inside. That's why COVID was very frustrating. Yes. You couldn't be in the action. Palm's scene with Tom at the end of the movie, mm -hmm. I had to direct over Zoom because I'd been contact oh, traced. So you got to imagine like you're just, it's like trying to, as I describe it, it's like trying to repair a pocket watch wearing boxing gloves. Wow. It's very, very, very frustrating, yes. slow process. Carrie Elwes and Isai Morales, their whole scene, I directed over Zoom. I wasn't there physically on set. That's and, it, and it's very, but, and as frustrating as that was when it was over, I then realized, oh, I can direct two movies at a time because I can put second unit on Zoom or splinter unit, shooting all my inserts. Mm. I, I had them on Zoom while I was standing next to the monitor. Once you learn to do it, it was it, it became another tool. But while learning it, it was like mm. learning to walk again. Yeah. So where it goes off the rails. So, yes. so yeah. Vanessa yeah. Kirby, we're shooting her character and none of what was written on the page mm. in a preconceived notion of who this character was, was it all interesting? It was it was coming at the expense of Vanessa. It was she was a flighty, frivolous character, but you could see this actor had such innate power. 
And danger. And danger. Yeah. So Tom and I kept reaching for the danger of this character. The threat was in the plot. And we realized the threat is much more interesting when it's the character. And you watched as Vanessa settled in. And when she's saying, I want her, Lark, and you're going to bring her to me, you see her become this very intimidating character. Well, Vanessa was, her first day on mission, was prepared for the for the script and yeah. was suddenly turning into this other character, which is very destabilizing for a lot of actors. And we just kept saying, it's okay, just go with it, just go with it. We shot her entire side of the scene. Family, what can you do? Mm -hmm. There's all this emotion and pathos and there's a whole new reality of this character that didn't exist. And we came time to turn around. I looked at Tom and I said, well, this character is not going to take any shit from you. Mm -hmm. You can't be the guy yeah, that, that normally that, is. That's on the page. Yes. And Tom Cruise said, you're right. And threw it out. And in so doing, throughout the whole central concept of the movie, because what Vanessa was giving us was far more compelling than a contrivance of Tom playing undercover Ethan Hunt. And it is so compelling. Yes. And that is that is the pivot. That's that's the crystalline example of the pivot that we do ten times a day. Mm. Tom's whole relationship with Haley, we were constantly on pivot. We were trying to find the dynamic between these two characters that was different from the dynamic with all the other women that are in the movie mm -hmm. and a dynamic that served Haley's it. Mm -hmm. And Haley has it. Mm -hmm. And we've been looking at Haley for 10 years. Yeah, I, I saw heard. her yeah, in, yeah. in a play, right? Yeah. I saw yeah. her in the, in the pride, the pride. and yes. I had seen her in other things and I had, and I, and I, I'd had an eye on Haley and, and, but it was when I saw her in this play that I realized Oh my God, they've just been sticking her in period gowns mm -hmm. and kind of rely, <laughs> yeah. relying on her phenomenal cheekbones. Mm -hmm. And there is this whole other depth to this character. Yeah. And, and I found her enormously appealing as Agent Carter. Yes. When they were finally putting her kind of, they were, they were giving her a, her own legs on which to stand. But then I saw this play and realized. Mm -hmm. Oh my God! There's 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 infinite depth to this to this character. Yes, and you see it in little moments when she comes up to Tom on the train. Yeah, in that in that and says, "Are you okay?" Mm -hmm. In that moment, and he says, "Are you okay?" And she just has that uh, the wonderfulness of her. Then, yeah, absolutely. That is a snippet of thirty seconds mm -hmm. that Haley gave, where. We didn't know what Tom said to her at that point. Right. Okay. All I said was go up to him and say and and just it, just give me what you're feeling having just been through this experience. Mm. Summarized in one word, which I won't tell you because when she did it her motivations on the train were entirely different than what you saw in the movie. We changed the whole scene, yes. it was a different scene. So weird. Haley was giving me a completely different performance, none of which matters. It's the emotions in the moment. Yeah. She And so she didn't even know what Tom was saying, nor did I. And it was only when I saw her do it that I realized, oh, I know what Tom is saying. Yeah, okay. So what we're doing is the actors are giving us these, these emotional building blocks they're mm. creating these puzzle pieces and we're then we're then creating the pieces that complement it so that scene exists entirely because Haley, with a single word 
dropped down in front of Tom and gave him yep. this gave him yeah this vulnerability yeah. gift if you like yeah. um and and the shame of it was that in the course of a giant movie like this you couldn't use you couldn't just stay there for 30 seconds with her mm. because the audience is going where's the key yeah exactly yeah, <laughs> yeah it's like the yeah. movie is happening what are you doing <laughs> and i kept lingering on it like mm. i kept trying i cut it second by second wanting to frankly indulge mm. i want it I, the, the performance was so good and the performance was so affecting that but what was interesting was that if you stayed in it too long you became frustrated because now you started to feel the character making it more about herself than than yeah. her purpose yes and when i cut it down to that you suddenly, you actually felt more for her. Yes, you did. Yeah. Uh, and I suppose it's very much a balance. And we talked about sort of push-pull as well, because you, you've got the sort of the 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 complete enigmaticness of Vanessa Kirby uh, or Rebecca yeah. Ferguson. You've got these like really larger-than-life characters, but you also do need the, the nuances. And Hayley Atwell's character it is very soft, but there's a hell of a lot going on there. Mm-hmm. Do you do you find that you have to kind of balance those in in the edit to make sure there's the right amounts of that kind of softer energy and the more intense sort of um, moments between the characters? Some, some of it's in the edit, and when you have actors like Vanessa and Haley, they give you such a an embarrassment of riches in terms of options. It's quite literally like turning it up and down. It's like mixing music. You just kind of need a little more horns and a little less. They they get, And Tom is the same way. Tom will just give you option after option after option. Um, and 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 the actors have all cut. Ving Rhames is amazing. Ving Rhames is just like, give me the line, I'll give it to you five times. And he just goes bang, 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 bang. <laughs> and it's, and, and so there, there's, there's a cold reading and a warm reading and a funny reading and a dark reading. And it's not to say we don't do the scenes at a run. We just then understand... You know, it's all in pursuit of affinity. It's all in pursuit of a dynamic. The scenes, the scene with the the guys together in the airport lounge, we shot that scene twice. First, we were really rushed when Mm -hmm. we shot it. The set didn't look like the right, the lighting didn't look right, but the dynamic wasn't right. When they're walking through, when Tom's walking through the airport, Mm -hmm. well, he's at this big giant airport in Abu Dhabi that we shot a year before. Right, yeah. That I knew I couldn't go back and get. Mm Mm-hmm. But I needed a team scene. I needed to feel the the. I needed to feel the friendship before the action could happen. Right. So I just said to Tom, "Just walk through the airport and say advert," and Tom just goes, "Probably, definitely, <laughs> permanently, maybe." Knowing that I, I'll now have the pieces to write a scene between Luther and Benji in mm. which Tom is participating. That's so clever. I love it. What Tom is giving us. His dialogue is a complete generality. Yes. His performance is the specificity. Yeah. So Tom walking through there and you just see him, his only direction was, love these two guys. Like, mm. these are my friends. They're your friends. And yeah. you just, just enjoy the moment you're having with these friends before everything goes Gets wrong. To- the emotions matter more than the specificity of plot, which is completely malleable and completely mm. fungible, knowing that- if I know where I'm cutting to is, oh, I don't know, Benji in the car during yep. the third act of the movie. Mm-hmm. 
we knew that that wasn't shot in Norway. We shot that on a on a tr- in on Yorkshire, a, right? A, yeah, we shot yeah, it on yeah. a test track in yeah. England. Amazing. And he just we had a circuit. It was like a mile long circuit, mm-hmm. and I'm laying down in the back seat, and Simon Pegg and I are just saying, "Okay, try this line and try that line." And we have the script. We have all the other things we've shot. Mm-hmm. And when something seemed funny, we moved on. To the next thing. I love it. Look, you're brilliant with actors. It's very obvious. Well, I have brilliant actors. That's, that, that really it's helps. Very, it's They're, not, really bad. Helps. They're yeah. not a bad bunch. I think it's one of the best cast yeah. actually movies out there. Like, yeah, it, it has some of the, oh the my absolute God, it's top. It's a murderer's row. When I yeah. saw the picture of all of them in front of the Spanish Steps, I was like, that's a damn oh, that's good a great lineup. Cast. It's a great <laughs> cast. So because of that, we've got some questions from Orange. And the first one sure. is about actors. But because we're limited for time, let's see if you can answer these in less than 20 seconds. Nice. Oh, oh, oh it's a challenge. That's oh. a challenge. Okay, here we go. This is yeah. from Nina Christopherson, basing on the actors. What's an absolute no for you when actors come to read for a role uh uh it don't don't try to be anything but yourself don't try to be interesting it's just there's nothing less interesting than actors trying to be interesting that's a good one and just that was under 20 yourself. seconds the, 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 the most unique oh. thing you can be is yourself love that okay Perfect. uh dr addy asks what leads to the choice for the scores in the mi films for instance you know fallout was darker mm-hmm. and yet Sometimes it's lighter and you're playing with it constantly. Um, some of it is informed by being different than the previous movie. In the case of something like Fallout, it was trying to go a very different approach from all the orchestral stuff I had done previously. Interestingly, Dead Reckoning is me pushing Lorne Balfe to be more orchestral, which is not his Usual. not his go-to. Yes. He, Lorne likes synth and he likes it. And I pushed him very hard in the direction of of orchestral and specifically strings, which is not my comfort. I like brass and Ah. big, like gutsy music. And how do we find the emotion in strings? Mm. Sam Bradford asks, is there anything Tom won't do? Has Chris ever penned an idea and Cruz put his hand up to question it? Oh, constantly, constantly. Yeah. It'll be, yeah. And there will, there will be times when something is too broad or too, or too weird or too dark. And, uh, and I'll just say, just try it. I said, it's, it's it's your movie. It's not going to go. It's mm. and he'll say it's our movie. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's our movie. <laughs> it's you're ultimately it, it. It no matter what happens, you don't have to. You don't have to put it in the movie. And he'll do it. We don't say no to each other. It, it, he will. He will suggest something to me that I don't get. The shoes on the roof of the. Mm. I, I just didn't get it, and right. and there was no time. I was I, I was so focused on time. I wasn't really thinking about it. And shoes just became the thing. The thing, too. And big. I thought, God, we're spending so much time on these shoes when I really need to be getting off the roof. Mm. Tom understood that was character, and that's that was really the charm between those characters. So you, you, you just never say no, and one of two things will happen: either the other person will get it, mm. or the other the person whose idea it was will invariably say, "This really doesn't work." There's no there's no pride of authorship. You don't you don't chase it. That's good. And, and last question: If you could go back twenty, this is from Neil Rickatson. If you could go back twenty years, what advice would you give your younger self? Uh, regarding directing a feature film or getting one made? Mm, um, It's all about the audience. It's absolutely all about the audience. It's forget everything you have been educated into in terms of thinking about critics, awards, branding yourself as as some sort of filmmaker. Don't compare yourself to other filmmakers. Just make a movie to engage the audience. 
That is incredible. This has been absolutely wonderful. Thank Storytelling you. Storytelling so masterclass. Yes. Oh, my pleasure. Congratulations on Dead Reckoning Part One. Thank you. Go watch thank it. Thank you. But thank you, Chris. I really appreciate it. Great questions, guys. This is great. Thank this is a great interview. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you, buddy. None of our lives can matter more than this mission. I don't accept that. So there we have it. Oh my gosh. That was Christopher McCory. McHugh. Mm. Chris. I don't know what to call him. McHugh. I should call him McHugh. I feel like I'm his friend now. Um, what a guy. I love that. I mean, I hope you got so much out of that. Wow. Cram packed. I loved his I loved his history, talking about, you know, how he got his film sort of made in the first place and learning from his mm. mistakes. God, it was just it's like the best hour I've spent <laughs> in, in your life. In my life. <laughs> yeah, and it, it was also it was also very exciting to to cover Top Gun, which is mm. you know definitely one of our absolute favourites from uh, from last year. Pretty good effort. Now, Mission Impossible: Dead Reckoning Part One is out in cinemas from the 10th of July. Like I said mm. at the start, do go watch this in the cinema like as soon as you can. It's Mm. it's just amazing it'll blow you away I loved it but go out there right and make your films this is what this podcast is about is to try and help you do that and if Christopher hasn't inspired you in any way then you shouldn't be in this business so go out there and make your films and if you're lucky enough to rise up and do well just as Christopher Macquarie has done then it is your duty to send the train crashing off the bridge again um, on the way back down there you go. Uh, I really hope that train is okay, though, because, you know, other people need to use it. So that's the metaphor yes. behind well, it. Yeah. You'll get that reference when you see the film as well. Yes. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. If you've watched the film already, then hopefully you got that reference. And if not, just take a helicopter. <laughs> they just send it back down because <laughs> I need a lift. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this loop we're in uh, of elevator madness. <laughs> Um, right, okay, take care everyone. We'll see you next Tuesday for a very special Eddie Hamilton Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 chat. Plus secret guests. Secret guests. I mean, it's not secret to them. They, they know. They know. I hope they do. I mean, we know. We know. We filmed it. <laughs> We're with them. Um, until then, until that very wonderful time of next Tuesday, take care everyone. Thank you, Dom. Thanks, Giles. Bye, everyone. Bye. Drum us out. <laughs> yeah, drum us out. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> that was Dom on the drums, uh, everyone. If you didn't Bong- know, Bongo drums, way, Bongo, <laughs> Bongo madness. Yeah, um, when you when you've got them in the house, you you kind of have to. But. Um, Bongos I can play. Oh, there you go. A man, a man of many useless talents. <laughs> a man of many useless talents. Congratulations to you. If Chris is listening to this, I'm sure he'll sign you up to do the bongos for the uh, Day Reckoning yes, Part 2. Please do, Christopher, please do. <laughs> this podcast, should you choose to accept it, will self-destruct in five, four, three, two... Oh, wait, sorry. Wrong button. There we go.